So uh, I need to make a confession. Um, some of you know this, but I'm supposed to be on a diet at this moment in time. And I'm failing miserably because I, I like food. So I like, you know, chocolate and all the rest of it. And, I, and I'm not one of those people who uh, um, looks at calories and looks at all the rest of it. And I, I just, it's not me at all. In fact, Amy, my wife, said today, she said, you know, your bum looks a bit smaller, actually, which, uh, which I see is quite a compliment. So, uh, <laughs> so something's going right, I suppose. But, um, you know, we're, we're obsessed as a, as a culture, aren't we, in terms of food, what we eat. And there was a, a program uh, run by uh, the lady um, on Channel 4, Gillian uh, McKeith, trying to convince people that you are what you eat. Um, I don't know if you can remember that program. It's something I didn't watch, but I knew a lot about. Um, and the reason I say this is because as a culture, as a, as a body, as a human body, we are conscious of what we eat. We're conscious that we are what we eat and, and, and all the rest of it. And as, as a spiritual body, as a church, we have to be very, very careful what we consume. We have to be careful what we read. We have to be careful how we think. We have to be careful what we watch. We have to be careful um, uh, who we listen to because we are what we eat. Yeah, we are what we consume. Okay, and what Noel spoke about last week in last week's sermon is about healthy doctrine, healthy doctrine, and how that equals healthy living. All right. So whatever you, however you're taught, or whatever you are taught, that will um, come out in some way, shape, or form in how you live. A healthy, biblical, Christ-exalting, and gospel-centered doctrine produces healthy, biblical, Christ-exalting, and gospel-centered behavior. Right doctrine, right behavior. That's the kind of thing that, we're, that we were looking at. So we have to be careful what we consume. Just to, be, just to go back a little bit, just to recap on the, uh, about Titus and, and what, what it's about, the framework of the book. It's a letter. The Apostle Paul uh, had planted a number of churches in Crete. He had um, uh, planted a number of churches and he's left a young pastor called Titus in charge and, and, and uh, in Titus chapter 1, we see that Paul refers to Titus as, as, his, as his son, as his kind of, you know, someone who is, is cherished, who he has mentored, who he has um, kind of loved and been with for a long time. So he's got a good relationship with Titus. And Paul is urging Titus to lead the people deeper into the gospel because Paul is concerned about the false teaching going on within the church in Crete. There were people there who are, who are teaching false doctrine, and that's why I started how I started it. We were teaching things that weren't right in the Bible. It wasn't correct. So um, Paul is really, really um, conscious of that. Um, and um, we heard last week how Paul is calling people to have grace, a grace-induced godliness, uh, a godliness there that's uh, just been induced by God's grace, by who God is. Um, and, um, and again, whatever we listen to, whatever we read, whatever, uh, you know, and whoever, whatever we are consuming, that will come out in a certain way. And, and what we want as a church is for us to be godly, for us to live in a healthy way. He's urging the people to live countercultural lives within Crete. In Crete at that time, um, they'd never even seen a Christian before. Okay, so their culture... Very similar to our culture, I suppose, it was, you know, quite kind of do what you want. It's kind of, we, we worship this God, but you can do this. And, you know, there's no kind of definite answer as to, as to, you know, who rules what or whatever. 
and they haven't seen they didn't see they didn't know what christians are paul is really conscious that he wanted that the people in the in the christian church to live countercultural, different lives lives that were different from um uh, uh, the people that were outside of church now that's a challenge for us now isn't it because if we think about the people that we see outside of church the people that we see um you know our friends and family some of them may never have met a christian before some of them may have had dealings with some christians some of them may have known about the christian faith a little bit but actually to meet someone you may be the first person they've actually met who is a christian what impression are you giving just just think about that what impression are you giving how are you living in front of them what does your life say about the gospel you say that you're going to church on a sunday what impression does that give to that person when you are with them and this has been a challenge for me so please don't when i when i'm speaking about this don't think it's me thinking i'm high and mighty and i'm with everyone here because i know if you're anything like me you're thinking well maybe i shouldn't have done this that and the other okay and hopefully by the end of this you will you will see that um you won't be able to you can't do this on your own it's only by god's grace that we can do this so as a response to this paul has uh, written this letter and um because that's the goal of our calling the the uh the title of this mini series is the goal of our calling is to be a healthy christ honoring church whose members are living out um countercultural lives in the community that's the that's that's kind of the goal of where we are to be a healthy church healthy gospel preaching christ exalting church that whose members are living out counter cultural lives in the community and in tangible ways are loving one another as well and we're going to see that um, within this passage we're going to look at it in three ways we're going to look at it uh, through sound doctrine um, secondly gospel shapes lives and then thirdly we'll look at god our savior so sound doctrine if we uh, just get the reading on the screen after speaking to titus about the importance of establishing healthy leaders paul tells um titus he must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine now when paul says sound doctrine he's basically saying uh, correct teaching it, the teaching has to be right so doctor you can have a doctrine for example about god or you can have a doctrine about the trinity or you can have a doctrine about uh, jesus it's it's teaching what is the right teaching because we can't just teach what we think the bible should what what we think the bible should say we need to teach what the bible says because when we teach what the bible says sometimes it makes us uncomfortable naturally sometimes it makes us uncomfortable and we and sometimes we can be guilty of twisting the bible to say that thing because i don't really like what that is saying that's false doctrine that's false doctrine now the leaders of the church of any church must be extra vigilant in uh, making sure that the teaching of a particular in the church has is, is being taught correctly all right so yeah that's in any church not just this church if you're a leader of a church you have to be you know you know make sure that the person handling the bible is teaching it correctly and not twisting it to say what you think it should say and that's also in terms of life groups if you're in a life groups it could be wings it could be uh, any type of activity where the bible is being taught 
How is it being taught? Is it sound doctrine? Is it right? Now, I believe that this is not just a process where leaders go through. I think this is a process which everyone in the church can go through. Because the question I want to ask you is, how do you know if you're being taught false doctrine? How do you know? How do you know that the person standing up here isn't just kind of saying what he wants and and you're kind of taking that away and it's not right? How do you know that? I heard once um, a couple within a a church, um, they were asked by uh, the friends um, or or some unbelieving friends about a certain position they had within the Bible. And their response was, well, our position is exactly what the Bible is. Our position is what the pastor says. Really? Okay, I'm not saying don't believe what the pastor says. But you have to think for yourself. Because Christianity isn't just a case of you come, you listen and you leave. It's a case of you have to think for yourself. Um, Do you know what you actually believe? This is why it's so important to have a personal relationship with God. Some of the best times I've had, okay, in terms of teaching, is when... I'm alone with God's word. How often do we get to do that? How often do we get to just sit alone and, and, and just, to, just to read the Bible and think things through and study for yourself? Now, I know in our culture, spe- you know, well, I say especially me, I know with me it's difficult with three children trying to get away and think and, and study and, and, and read different things about the Bible and just being God's word is, is, is increasingly difficult. But I, can I encourage you, it's a priority Okay? Not that it's a case of you have to do this to be a Christian. It's a case of you get to spend time with God. I heard someone say, uh, say it like this. Why would you be satisfied to communicate with Moses when you can go up the mountain and communicate with God himself? Do you understand what he's saying there? Why would you be satisfied to, to communicate with Moses? Imagine being, you know... One of the people, okay? And then Moses says to you, and you see, and you know that Moses is that kind of mediator, that person who spoke for God, okay? And Moses said, I tell you what, you can come with me and you can speak to God yourself. Would you say no? Because I know I wouldn't. Would I be fearful? Yes. You need, guys, to be able to think for yourself, read through the Bible for yourself. If I said to you, the only time I feed my children was Sunday. They have a good meal, some apples, um, and then I give them nothing throughout the week. So I feed them on Sunday, they have a good meal, and then nothing. Would you be concerned? Because I think you would. And what would happen is my children would start to look quite skinnier. Well, they're quite skinny anyway. It wouldn't be right, and you'd be very concerned, and I'd be concerned if you weren't concerned. Now, that's kind of like what I'm saying here. We have to be able. Could you imagine just saying, if you just come here and you, and you listen to the Bible, being taught, and then you leave on a Sunday, and the only time you're in the Bible is actually on a Sunday? It, it, it would be a concern. It would be a concern. Dig into the Bible. I've, um, I've got plenty to say about this, but in, 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 in the case, in, for the sake of time, I won't. But in terms of different things you can read, different things you can um, you know, kind of look into, come and see me after. We can, we can go through that. Because you, as you grow closer to God and as you mature, 
you'll be able to discern what, you, uh, what you'll be able to detect, and you'll be able to detect, sorry, false doctrine. As you grow and as you mature, you'll be able to detect false doctrine. Oh, sorry. I knew there'd be a technical difficulty. I just didn't think it'd be mine, me making it. Um, you'll be able to detect false doctrine as you mature and as you grow. And you play a big part in, uh, um, in being able to detect, is this doctrine right or not? So I really encourage you to do that. In Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, this and he says um, in 4, uh, 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Just not carried about, carried about by different doctrines, but just, just to know um, the doctrine that you've been taught and for you to be able to uh, listen and study for yourself, not to be tossed to and fro. That's the sign of maturity. So I would encourage you to do that. Then we go into uh, verse 2. Now, we brought, before we get into this section, there are two things I want to explain to you just really quickly. So it frames your thinking. You're thinking uh, for the uh, older and younger as it talks about the different um, kind of um, uh, the, the lifestyles that, that you could uh, lead there. The two things are this. People are always watching. And discipleship is a whole church matter. People are always watching, and discipleship is a whole church matter. Um, so the first one, people are always watching. Um, I'm head of uh, year 11 in a school, okay? And I know that people are always watching uh, the kids in my year group because I'm constantly getting emails, positive and negative, saying the kids have done this, the kids have done that, da 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 And I know that they're constantly watching, and they're watching in terms of results and things. They're watching that year group in particular. Have we ever thought about if we say we're a Christian, and if we say... Um, you know, we, we believe in the gospel. That people watch. And Paul, in, the, in this uh, section, he's very concerned about that, as we'll, as we'll speak about later. He's very concerned, and he, and he knows this. That people watch and uh, maybe not critiquing you in a certain way, but they just watch your behavior. If you say something and then you do doing something completely different, if you say you, you believe a certain thing and then you, you're, the, the way you live shows that you believe something else, they're, they're watching that. Have you never been in that situation where your friend says to you, and I know I've had this plenty of times, I thought you were a Christian, why are you saying that? And then you feel like the ground just needs to swallow you up. Because that happens. And it, and, it, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Now, we are to behave, as, God say, as um, Paul says, in such a way that makes the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive about the, the behave in such a way that makes the teachings about God, our Savior, attractive. Do we do that? Do we do that? Second thing, discipleship is a whole church issue. Now, specifically within this passage, it talks about um, older women discipling the younger women. Okay, and again, we'll go into that in, in more detail later. But the ownership of discipleship, the, the ownership of discipleship, is a whole church issue. It's not just a leader's one. That means that we are all, we are all called to disciple each other. Okay? So what is discipleship? It's a process where God uses imperfect people like me and you to encourage and to equip um, uh, our brothers and sisters and, and to point them to Jesus. Um, and it's just about, and it's about inviting them into your life and being honest with them. Having a, good, having a genuine relationship with them. 
A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. That's, that's, that's plain and simple what a disciple is. And discipleship is kind of training someone up in that. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the church's collective responsibility. We all have a part to play in it. Now, a culture, can you imagine a culture where we're all looking out for each other, investing in each other? Can you imagine a culture where we are kind of looking, and, and regardless of age, this, and we've, we've, had, we've had conversations about this, looking at, we're all older than somebody, okay? I know this, this passage is quite specific, but in terms of discipleship, we're all older than someone, and that could be spiritually as well. But looking out for each other, inviting people into your lives, as I said when he was leading the service, life groups sharpening in it, uh, each other up, just talking things through with people. What does it look like to be a dad? What does it look like to be a single mom? What does it look like to be a new mom? What does it look like to be a grandma? What does it look like? And there's people we are blessed. God has God's put us all together with our different skills and our, our um, kind of uh, life stage and, and where we've been. He's put us all together so we can help to mature each other. We're not, we're not made to... to uh, uh, do and uh, have this Christian life on our own. We are made to live in community uh, with each other. Now, this culture sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds attractive. It sounds. Can you imagine a place where you could come and people know you, and you and you can call them your brothers and sisters? And it's like um, like having a family, and you can be honest with them. You can be open, and they're looking out for you, and they're and they're sharing their lives with you, and you're sharing the lives with, uh, your lives with them, and you and you've you've got this fantastic relationship with them. That can only happen if you have genuine relationships. And I, I need to be clear with this: if you just if you come to church. On a Sunday, that's great. But if that's the only time you see people from church, you will not have these relationships. Now, Paul in this passage is saying, he isn't talking about coming to a church service. He's talking about being the church. And there's a difference. All right? He's not talking about coming to a service and listening to someone. He's talking about being the church, being that loving body, teaching one another developing one another, encouraging one another. You won't get that by just coming to a service. Now, this isn't a case of being legalistic and saying you have to, you come to more meetings. Please don't hear me say that. I'm saying genuine relationships with people, okay, outside of church is how the community evolves and grows and how the Holy Spirit um, kind of strengthens that. So I would really encourage you to get into different relationships with people. Meet up with, it doesn't have to be in life groups or anything. It's just a case of just meet up with people, get and speak to different people outside of church. Have, you know, pray for those genuine relationships. Life groups is a, is a great example of doing that. So like what I've said, Paul isn't talking about coming to, church, coming to a church service. He's talking about us being a church. Jesus prays. Jesus wants us to be a loving body. He wants us to be a family. We've just, we've just um, been uh, singing about that in the last song. Welcome you, you've welcomed me into your family. Sometimes church doesn't feel like family. It feels like kind of like, you know, you've got Facebook friends. You've got like 500 Facebook friends, and you kind of know what, they, you know what they're doing. And then when you pass them on the street, you don't actually speak to them, but you call them a friend. 
Please, let, let's not make church like that. Let's not make church like that. We are supposed to be a community where we know each other. We have genuine relationships with each other. I was thinking about an, an, an illustration of this, and it's kind of like, you know, you, ha- you have an amazing sports car. I don't, I'm not really into cars, but you have an amazing car, and it's, it's sat on your drive. It's a, an amazing sports car with all the gadgets on it, and it's, it's sat there. But all you do is look at that car. You don't actually go in and drive it. That's a little bit like what it's like when you um, are in, uh, coming to a church service, but you're not in the community of the church. There's a dis- there is a difference. Don't miss out. So, people are watching. Discipleship is a whole church issue. Discipleship cannot happen without genuine relationships. Now, Paul speaks about different genders and age groups, and he explains what a gospel-centered lifestyle looks like uh, for each of them. Um, we haven't got time to go through them in, in loads and loads of detail, but there's a few that I'm going to hit and, and speak about in, in some detail. Um, but again, going back to my first point, I'd strongly recommend you go, uh, go home, read through, think about, pray about, um, you know, the different things that, um, that we didn't get to get into um, today. So, we'll look at the lifestyle of the older and younger first. What does the lifestyle of the older and younger within the church look like? in light of the gospel. So older men, when looking at various commentaries and, uh, and thinking about this and, and listening to different people, there seems to be a consensus that the older man that um, Paul is talking about within this, they're, they're about 50, maybe. I'd say within our church, an older man would be 30-ish, but I'm not sure. I don't, I, I, I don't know. That would class me as an older man, which fine. <laughs> but just, it, you know, it's an older man. Okay, and maybe for the sake of uh, this, we'll say, you know, 30 onwards. Um, But uh, Paul tells Titus to teach the older men to be temperate. Another word for that could be sober-minded, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Paul is saying that these men are to have Christian dignity, to have a vibrant faith and to endure well. So like I said, temperate is another word for sober-minded. Uh, someone who has a seriousness about them. Not someone who's like a killjoy and just kind of like, you can't do that. It's someone who, you know, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Christian living, there's a seriousness about them. You've been around these men, these men who kind of just have that kind of bit of presence of, okay, yeah, this, you know, he's serious about the Bible. He's not just messing around with that. There's, I suppose there's banter, which, I, you, know, I, you know, I'm part of that, I suppose. But... Um, there's a seriousness when he talks about, uh, talks about the Bible. Someone who is worthy of respect and is self-controlled. Self-control is a massive issue in our culture. It comes up in three times um, in Titus um, in this letter. So it's a massive issue in that culture as well, isn't it? Self-control. We're to be self-disciplined and we'll be able to control our desires and emotions. And... Um, Someone who is sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Someone who has endured well. Someone who hasn't had an easy life. Okay, we're not saying, oh, I'm a Christian and everything's fine. You know, has been through it. You know, they've been through some tough times. But at the end of it, we can say, God is good. I've been through this, and this is my experience. Okay, and all I've seen is that God has just been good to me. That's, that's what he's saying, that an older man um, needs to be. And we are blessed as a church to have that. 
to have men who, who have been through things and um, to have men who have a seriousness about them as well. I don't know if anyone's heard about the Ashley Madison scandal in America. I don't know if anyone's heard of this. Now, this is a website for married men and women to set up secret accounts to have affairs with different people. And the slogan is, life is short, have an affair. That's the slogan. I don't know if you've heard about this scandal. Uh, Ashley Madison, the website, has 37 million members around the world, including 1.2 million Brits. Married people um, signing on to that and uh, having a kind of secret affairs. Now, recently, there's been an uproar because hackers have got onto the system and... Um, and have exposed all the names of the people that have been having the affair, so they're not so secret anymore. I think that to pay a, you know, a certain amount of money to be, to be kept secret, and um, hackers have just got onto it and have just put it all on the internet. So what's happened is there's a spreadsheet. I think you can go on, on the internet or something like that, where you can look down and see names that are on it. You can imagine what that would have been like for the people who've got the secret accounts, and then they realise that that's happened. The fear that would have gone through them. Now some of the um, Stats are quite shocking. One of them that isn't shocking, I think that says most, something about our culture, is it's mostly men that use it. Is that a shock? So it's mostly men that use the site. But here's the thing that got me. Over 400 of them were pastors of churches. 400. A number of men were elders, leaders, or just Christian men in families. Now there's two ways how you, how you can react to that. Firstly, when I heard this, I was like, disgusted, um, you know, what are they doing? Absolutely disgrace, which it is disgusting, and 400 pastors would have to resign after seeing their names on that list. But I would just listen, men, don't make the mistake that I made of thinking that by the grace of God, that you're not there. We are all capable of making ridiculous choices. We are all capable of screwing up. We are all capable of, of making the wrong choices and, and ruining ministries, ruining Christian churches, ruining families because of our lack of self-control. You show me a man with no self-control, that man is destined for disaster. And you know that. It, I find it amazing that in this passage... That, that was written so many years ago. You could place it in our culture today and it still has massive significance. Self-control. You imagine how many of the situations could be resolved because of self-control. I mean, have you noticed for the young men, the one thing it says for the young men, what does it say? Young men have self-control. That's it. If you have self-control, a lot of the other things will be sorted. Self-control. Men, what I would say to you is this. Cling to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to the gospel. Look at what Jesus has done. And be in community with other people. Don't be in isolation. Because I've because I been thinking about this. And I would have delivered it differently if I didn't think about this. But I would have said this. That we could be in that exact same situation if it wasn't for God himself stopping us. I mean, these are pastors. You don't think they've read Titus 2 before and, and have been challenged by it? These are pastors. So, um, 
a lot to think about there. So we need to be men who have a sound, vibrant faith. And if it wasn't for God's grace, we would be there. We need to cling to Jesus and keep looking to the cross. Then it goes into older women. Older women, likewise, teach the, uh, teach the uh, older women... Likewise, teach old women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach uh, what is good. Uh, within the culture of Crete, there was a culture of laziness lying about, you know, kind of the men were at work and the older men, women, the children had gone, so they were just kind of gossiping. And, and um, that, was, that was a culture. That was a culture of what was going on. And Paul directly speaks into that. And then he, he implores the, the older women to, to urge the younger women to love their husbands and children um, and to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to the husband so that no one will malign the word of God. The instruction to the Christian older woman is to train, encourage, and mentor young women. Someone who was speaking about this said that the word teach means older ladies come alongside younger ladies and intentionally involve yourself in their lives. Encourage them, exalt them, and by your example, show them a life that is worthy of the gospel. Wouldn't that be an amazing culture to have within this church, that the older women of the church are actually actively, intentionally looking out to involve themselves in, into their lives, to mentor uh, the younger women. That's kind of what I was speaking about, and also I spoke about that when, uh, when we were uh, talking about discipleship as well. To invest in other people. So what are the older women teaching the young women to do? To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Two main ones I'm going to unpack. I'm not going to unpack all of them because I haven't got time. To be busy at home and to be subject to the husbands. These issues or these statements have uh, been debated within the Christian church for, for years and I want to just uh, try and unpack it very quickly. For both sections, I want us to think about this statement. It's we before me. We before me. Our needs, our wants, our desires come before my own. And that's in terms of the home and, and that's in terms of um, um, you know, my relationship with my husband as well. Is the relationship, is the um, things that we're going through, is it right for us? Not just for me. Now, to be busy at home. This does not mean that women are to stay at home while the men work. Now, this is what the church, the church has been portrayed as, as being a kind of like this kind of um, living in the dark ages thing, you know. This is not what it is saying. Let me make that really clear. In Proverbs 31, which I would say go back to and read, um, if you're interested in this, just to read just a little bit about it, it says, um, she, uh, talking about a wife, she selects wool and flax and works, uh, with eager hands, she is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is uh, still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Up for earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets out about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees her trading in profit is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. And I'm just going uh, near the end to say she watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, um, and, and he praises her. And it goes on, and it speaks about this uh, kind of uh, biblical woman in a, in, a, in a biblical marriage. Now, what part of that means, stay at home? That doesn't mean stay at home. This is, a, this is someone who buys real estate, estate, sells clothes, travels, plants vineyards, and, and does ministry. But a primary motive is, is the people within her home. 
it's all working around, it's we before me. It's the primary motive is, is, is what, 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 what's best for us. And then things flourish out of that. And then ministry happens out of that as well. Um, in fact, later down, later on, it says about the, the children and a husband um, uh, rejoicing um, where, with, the, uh, uh, with the wife uh, when she's uh, in the home. Okay? So it's not talking about just staying at home. It's just having a, having a motive of, of my family come first. So with that in mind, I want you to think about and have a bigger vision for your home as well. I want, us, I want to challenge you to think, you know, could God strategically use my home um, for people to meet Jesus, for people to, for uh, life to be changed? Could it be more than just like how, what the home looks like? Okay, but it would be a case of, can God use this? Can God use my home to glorify himself? An author, Jen Wilkins, says there's a big difference between entertaining and, um, and being hospitable. Entertaining is always thinking about the next course. Hospitality burns the rolls because it was listening to a story. Entertaining ob- uh, obsesses what went wrong. Hospitality savers what was shared. Entertaining, exhausted, says it was nothing really. Hospitality thinks it was nothing really. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. Someone said that you don't have to give people Disney World every time you open the doors of your home. You just need to give them you. And that's the type of thing he's talking about. Seeing, that, seeing your home as a strategic place where God could use, where God could redeem it. Thinking bigger, having a bigger vision for it. So, that's the first thing. The second thing is this, to be subject to their husbands. In another version of the Bible, it says a wife to, uh, to submit to their husbands. Um, and um, let me be really clear. I have two daughters. I would never, ever, ever say to them, you need to submit to men. Because what, we, what have we just read about in terms of men in general? Okay. Sometimes they don't even know what day it is. Okay. And I'm one of them. Okay. I'm saying that. This is an, an equality thing. Okay. This is in the context of being in a, in a loving, godly, Christian relationship. Okay. God comes first in that relationship. And if a man, because I know some passages like that, that this have been used for men to bully women and wives, and it's been absolutely disgusting. It's not that at all. God comes first. If a husband is doing something that is not godly or Christian, then the wife's allegiance is with the husband. So it's not a case of that. So a lot of people thinking about this and, and kind of wives submitted to husbands, what is submission? It's just laying aside your will. We before me. Right? Laying aside your will for someone else. And that's kind of what it's talking about. Just what do, what, what's, what's our desires and our thoughts? How does that come before my own? So in Ephesians chapter 5.22, it says, um, submit to your husbands, but they forget. Sometimes you forget that in chapter 21, Paul lays out a framework for uh, submission, and it says, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. What does that actually mean? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ died for the church. Christ died for the church and he gave his life for the church. And the church at that time gave him nothing back. That's what it's saying. It's saying, look, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and ladies as well in terms of submission, you know, lay aside your will. Okay, lay aside your will and think about it's we before me. And it's mutual submission. They're both doing the same. You see a husband and wife working together serving each other, 
constantly honouring and supporting each other. This is something which is completely countercultural, And is, if practised rightly, the world will not be able to criticise the gospel. Or as Paul says, no one will be able to malign you. Not malign the word of God. Okay? Um, I haven't got time to go into slavery, but, there's, uh, but Paul, our pastor, uh, spoke about slavery in great detail um, in uh, our series on 1 Peter entitled Living with Slavery and Injustice and Liberating Slavery. Um, if you want to listen to that, you can do. Just some a helpful commentary that I found. Um, the most striking item about slavery, it says, the most striking item in this list of instructions that commands the slaves in verse 9 and 10 is to be seen, of course, in the setting of ordinary daily life in the first century. Slavery was a fact of life and there was no point pretending it wasn't. You could no, do no more abolish slavery overnight in the first century than you could invent space travel. What that means is that slavery was in the, in the fabric of society at that time. What Paul was doing simply was just was, um, was writing into that. And what a challenge when he says that our lifestyles need to make the teachings of our um, saviour, God our saviour, attractive in that environment. What a challenge. So, how are we doing? Are we living countercultural lives? Or do our lives just look the same as everyone else's? Do we honour our employees or do we gossip? Do our lives reflect the gospel? If people look at us, would they see uh, lives that are worthy of the gospel? Do our lives um, make the teachers of God our Saviour attractive? This leads me to my final uh, section. Um, which, I will, uh, which, which won't take long because we're nearly done. And it's entitled God Our Saviour. Because I'm really glad that this uh, message, I'm really glad that the passage doesn't end there. That the passage doesn't just end with that saying, these are all the expectations you need to do, and that's it, finish, go off and do it. It doesn't end there. Thank goodness. Because I look at my lifestyle, I don't know about you, but when I've been going through the things that's expected, I think, uh, I've, I'm not always sober-minded. I've, I make silly mistakes. I've, I've, done, I've been to my workplace and I've said things that I shouldn't have. What a challenge. I'm so thankful that the fuel behind living a gospel-centered life is actually the gospel. I'm, I'm so thankful that living a gospel-centered life, living a life that is countercultural and different, is actually the gospel that can, that can help me within that. It's by grace that we have the strength and it's by grace that anyone would look at our lives and see the truth of God. It's by sheer grace. Part of the false teaching going on was an attack on the fact that God our Saviour, that God is our Saviour, sorry, and that we can't do anything to earn it. We cannot save ourselves. He actually taught the phrases of God our Saviour. It, it, uh, it says within uh, the passage, it says, God our Saviour, Christ Jesus our Saviour, God and, uh, God and Saviour Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Saviour. It appears six times in, in total. Paul is trying to make a real plea here about God being our Saviour. Because it's really important. We cannot save ourselves. I would just want to leave you with a picture. In the film, uh, Les Miserables, it was on Channel 4 one night and I haven't ever watched it. And uh, I thought, oh, this would be interesting because Russell Crowe singing would be interesting. So we started watching it, and surprisingly, I really got into it. And um, there's a scene at, uh, near the end of the film where the, the main character, um, Jean Valjean, I think, is, <laughs> uh, 
goes to fight for the French Revolution. He does that because there's another character in there who, um, who um, fancies, likes his uh, daughter, kind of. All right. So there's another character in there, and he wants to see what this man's like. He wants to see what this person is like. So he goes in, in to fight for the, for the French Revolution. And then, so the fighting, all, the, all these people get killed. And the character who plays um, Stephen Hawkins, I can't remember his name, he, he's the man who, who um, John Valjean is watching, okay, to see what kind of character he is. And he sees, a noble, he sees he's a noble character. People are getting shot left, right, and center. And then uh, this man gets shot. And then John Valjean grabs him, okay, and then he goes into the Paris sewers, into the sewers, and then drags him down there, Okay, and it gets to gets to a point where Jean Valjean is is actually in the sewage, like submerged in the sewage, and then he's lifting this this boy up so they can so he can uh, breathe, so, just in filth. And then the boy actually survives. Now think about it: would that boy be able to save himself? The answer is no. Jean Valjean had to come get him. Submerge himself into the sewage and lift this lift this boy up so he can uh, so he can breathe for himself, and then he, he got into a hospital. Friends, Jesus Christ has the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ has submerged himself in our mess. He's died on the cross, and he's taken the punishment, and he's submerged himself in our mess. Why? So he can lift up our heads. So we can be saved. So we can breathe. We cannot do it on our own. It's by his grace. It's all by grace. There is nothing that we can do to deserve it. It's completely undeserved. Now if you're a Christian, this is amazing news. You can't do this on your own. Jesus has saved you. He's changing you. And you've been placed in a loving community to support you and cheer you on. If you're not a Christian, this again is amazing you because you're invited to live a life which has meaning and purpose. Where Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, will walk with you every step of the way. I'm just going to finish by reading the passage, which I wish we could have more time to go into, but I won't. But it says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We are a people. God is our saviour. And I encourage you to trust in him.